Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Hello, virtual Calvary Chapel family. Turn with me your Bibles to John chapter 5, verse 30. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. We do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you will believe in me, for he wrote about me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Lord, these are strange times that we live in. I pray that everyone who is listening to this, Father, and watching this, that you would touch their heart, anoint these lips of clay. We ask in Christ's name, amen. In a court of law, the witness is a very important person. Their testimony can either condemn or acquit the person on trial. But sometimes how they answer the questions the lawyers ask can be pretty funny. I found a few of them online I think you'll get a kick out of. Lawyer, can you describe the individual? Witness, he was about medium height and had a beard. Lawyer, was this a male or a female? Witness, unless the circus was in town, I'm going with male. How about this one? Lawyer, what happened then? Witness, he told me I have to kill you because you can identify me. Lawyer, did he kill you? Witness, no. Or, lawyer, do you see him from where you were standing? Witness, I could see his head. Lawyer, and where was his head? Witness, just above his shoulders. Here's another. Lawyer, doctor, how many of your autopsies have you performed on dead people? Witness, all of them. The living ones put up too much of a fight. I love this one. Lawyer, what is your date of birth? Witness, July 18th. Lawyer, what year? 
witness every year. And finally, lawyer, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Witness, no. Lawyer, did you check for blood pressure? Witness, no. Lawyer, did you check for breathing? Witness, no. Lawyer, so it's possible the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? Witness, no. Lawyer, how can you be so sure, doctor? Witness, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. Well, this morning we're going to see that the witnesses that Jesus calls forth are going to give testimonies that should remove all doubt that he is who he said he was, and that is God in the flesh. I may need five extra minutes, but you should be comfortable. But we're finally going to finish chapter 5, which we started on January 19th. We're really going to need to speed things up if I'm going to finish this gospel before I die. Look at verse 30 with me. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. This is the point of Christ's first discourse in John's gospel. It has two main parts. In the first part, Jesus teaches that a man can know God because God the Father is revealed in God the Son. In the second part of the debate, Jesus gives evidence for this claim by pointing out that his testimony is substantiated by a series of other God-given witnesses. In verse 19 and in verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing of myself. These two verses are bookends that Jesus Christ could not act outside of the will of God. Having established his premise, the Lord began to call witnesses to support his claims. Before closing his case in verse 47, Jesus will have called five witnesses to the stand. If you're taking notes, they are witness one, God the Father. Witness two, John the Forerunner. Witness three, the signs and the miracles. Witness four, the scriptures. And witness five, Moses. In deference to the procedure of Jewish law, which required two or three witnesses for the establishment of any fact, Jesus now cites five independent testimonies that reinforce and corroborate his own. Now, please don't misunderstand when the Lord said, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. He did not mean to imply that his self-witness was unreliable. His point was that his Jewish opponents claimed his own self-testimony was not sufficient. The issue was not whether the testimony was true in itself, but whether his opponents would believe him. So he offered more testimony as evidence. For instance, Jesus' miracles prompted Nicodemus to confess, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God was with him. The scripture also records that many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than this man, will he? Even Jesus' bitter enemies, the chief priests and the Pharisees, convened a council, and they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. As he did here, the Lord himself repeatedly pointed his miraculous works as confirmation of his claim to be the Son of God and the Messiah. The Gospels record at least three dozens of these miracles, and Jesus performed countless others that Scripture does not record. 
These things should prove to the honest seeker that Jesus has come from God. We can see this principle by imagining that a person has come to us at our home with the news that our boss has given us a big promotion to that of being vice president of the firm. It is good news, of course, but it is meaningless unless the messenger has really came from the boss. If we call the firm and find out they've never heard of this person, then we can dismiss the visit as some strange practical joke. However, if the messenger really was sent by the boss, then we know that his offer is authentic. In the same way, the question of whether the supplementary witnesses to Jesus are really from God or not is really important. Verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. In his book, The Voice of a Prophet, A.W. Tozer writes, John the Baptist was called the forerunner simply because he ran before. When kings traveled in those days, they sent a man before them to announce their coming. John ran before King Jesus to alert the populace that he was coming. But the Lord would not come to a wilderness unless there was a satisfactory way prepared, and God will not prepare that way. John said, there is one coming after me, and he will not come unless you prepare the way. He will not come into the wilderness of your life of unconfessed sin. He will be riding a shining chariot, dispensing light like the sun, healing like a physician, and guiding like a shepherd. He will be all this, and he will disperse it from his shining chariot, but he will not drive his chariot into the tangled wilderness of your immoral lives. He will not come and build the road. That is the business of the people who invite him in. Tozer never minced words, did he? And if you haven't invited him into your life, I pray that you would do that today. Just then reminds them that they enjoyed John the Baptist for a while, but like most crowds, they can be very fickle. Not much has changed, has it? I've learned as a pastor that it is impossible to please everyone. Just take the thermostat in this room as an example. No matter what temperature I set it on, somebody hates me. If I put it on 70 degrees, some of you are sweating and some of you are wrapped in a blanket. Well, I mean, not right now because you're home. But it's like everyone in here, when you're here, it's like you're undergoing menopause. In one of Aesop's fables, we're given this story. A man and his son were once going with their donkey to a market. As they were walking along by its side, a countryman passed them and said, You fools, what is a donkey but to ride upon? So the man put the boy on the donkey, and they went on their way. But soon they passed a group of men, one of whom said, See that lazy youngster? He lets his father walk while he rides. So the man ordered the boy to get off and got on himself. But they hadn't gone far when they passed two women, one of whom said to the other, Shame on that lazy lout to let his poor little son trudge along. Well, the man didn't know what to do, but at last he took his boy up before him on the donkey. By this time they had come to the town, and the people began to jeer and point at them. The man stopped and asked, What are they scoffing at? The men said, Aren't you ashamed of yourself for overloading that poor donkey by both of you riding upon it? They were last seen carrying the donkey between them. The moral of the story is, please all, and you will please none.
And that's true. If we try to please everyone, we will go stark, raving mad. Let us be like John the Baptist and just do what God has called us to do, regardless of the applause or the jeering of any crowd. Verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who has sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. The Christian walk is much like riding a bicycle in that we are either moving forward or falling off. Jesus indicated that the Father gave him a specific ministry to finish while he was here on earth and even said, I have finished the work you have gave me to do. He was not only on a divine timetable, he also followed a divine agenda. The Father validated his son when he said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's the key. Jesus' validation came not from John the Baptist, nor even from his own works. It came directly from his Father. Let me ask you, is your validation coming from your own accomplishments or from others patting you on the back? If it is, it will never be enough. It will always be one pat shy of satisfaction. Validation for your life will not come from someone pointing out how good you are nor will it come from your own achievements. True validation comes when you hear the voice of the Father in your heart saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the only validation that brings security, satisfaction, and stability. That's the only validation that will make your life attractive, fruitful, and effective. Verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The Jewish scribes sought to know the word of God, but they did not know the God of the word. They counted the very letters of the text, but they missed the spiritual truth that the text contained. So there was something wrong with the minds of these Jewish leaders and that they did not see Christ in their own scriptures. But there was also something wrong with their wills for they would not trust in the Savior. Because they did not have the word in their hearts, they did not want Christ in their hearts. They were religious and self-righteous, but they were not saved. The verb to search in verse 39 can be translated either as a command or a statement. I believe Jesus issued a challenge by saying, go ahead and search the scriptures. His point was twofold. First, Jesus' challenge anticipated the conclusion the enemies would reach if they dared to take the message of scripture at face value. If they remained honest, the Old Testament would lead them to the conclusion that he was undoubtedly the Son of God. Or it could mean that these practitioners of religion search the word of God for criteria by which they can merit their own salvation. And so fail to encounter the word who promised to give them righteousness by grace through belief. He challenged the religious leaders to continue their vain quest while alluding to the grave consequences of their stubbornness. Rather than reading the scripture as a means to knowing God, 
they made the law their God. As an aside, the Greek word translated search means to track the scent, like a lion or a bloodhound. And by the way, that's the way to study scripture. Follow the scent of the blood. Snip out the scarlet thread of the cross. Look for Jesus because he is on every page. It's been said that if you cut the Bible, it would bleed red. We may summarize this by saying that the Bible was given by God to point to man to the Savior and that he must come to the Savior if he's to find life. This is necessary, for unless the life of God takes possession of our hearts, even the Word of God will be incomprehensible. Has the Word of God done that for you? Has it pointed it pointed you to the Savior? Accepting Jesus as a Son of God is not an intellectual problem. It is a crisis of the will. The religious leaders rejected Jesus not because they were unable, but because they were unwilling. And because of this, they were trusting the wrong thing. Do you remember the Titanic, that giant luxury liner? The Titanic had been designed according to the latest scientific technology of its day, and was supposed to be incapable of sinking. But it did sink. It hit an iceberg that ripped through nine of its watertight components. The resulting pressure was enough to burst through the rest of the ship. The Titanic went down, taking to the bottom many who were convinced that it could not happen. The Titanic disaster was a classic case of misplaced confidence. We also discover another case of misplaced confidence in these verses. However, in this case, a tragedy involves not merely the loss of life in this world, it also involves loss of life in the world to come. The Jewish leaders with whom Christ was speaking were not at all worried about salvation. They had the law of Moses and they trusted in their knowledge of it. It was evident from all that Jesus had to say, however, that a mere knowledge of the law was inadequate. The law was useful, but in itself it could not save. It was powerless. In fact, Jesus said the law will actually condemn those who are trusting in it. Verse 40, But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Jesus cared only about the honor that came from the Father and not the honor that came from men. That's why he was free to fulfill the Father's will. Solomon was right when he said that the fear of man will trip you up, but the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus could say, Father, I've finished the work that you've given me to do, and I've glorified you, because he sought honor from God rather than from man. Whereas religious leaders only wanted the honor that comes from man, proving that the love of God was absent in their lives. Jesus then tells them that another will come in his own name, and the world will receive him. 
Over the centuries, there have been many false messiahs, as many as 64, according to some Jewish historians. But here, Jesus is referring to the peacemaker, the Middle East problem solver. We know him as the Antichrist, who will come in his own name and who will be embraced by the entire world. Who knows? He may be alive right now in some part of the world, just biding his time. Jesus then poses this question to them and to us. How can you believe to receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? British author Alan de Botton describes the angst of this as status anxiety. He articulated it this way. The attention of others matters to us because we are afflicted by congenital uncertainty as to our own value as a result of which affliction we tend to allow others' appraisals to play a determining role in how we see ourselves. Our sense of identity is held captive by the judgments of those we live among. Our ego or self-conception can be pictured as a leaking balloon, forever requiring the helium of external love to remain inflated and ever vulnerable to the smallest pinpricks of neglect. There is something at once sobering and absurd in the extent to which we are lifted by the attention of others and sunk by their disregard. I think it's safe for me to say that many of us have experienced this. We get our sense of worth from the persons whom opinions we value the most. This process starts early on in life. You can probably remember wanting to fit in with the cool kids at school or obsessing about your appearance to impress a certain group or someone you had a crush upon. Ironically, rather than diminishing in adulthood, it only increases. For example, what's a resume? It's nothing more than an attempt to make ourselves look good so that people would choose us over others. What is dating? It's dressing and acting our very best in the hopes we will be accepted romantically. Seeing others as competition flows through our lives. This trap leads us to define ourselves by our outward appearance and hinders us from exposing our real selves. Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthian church, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. We should not judge people by worldly standards. Our identity does not stem from our appearance, accomplishments, or accolades. We don't have to hand God our moral resume or impress him with our performance. Because of trusting Jesus, we are fully accepted in God's sight. Verse 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Lord closed this penetrating sermon by warning the Jewish leaders that Moses, whom they honored, would be their judge and not their savior. 
the very scriptures that they used to defend their religion would one day bear witness against them. The Jews knew what Moses wrote, but they did not really believe what he wrote. What I mean is, it is one thing to have the word in our hands or our heads, but it's quite another thing to have it in our hearts. Not to seek that honor and glory that comes from God and Jesus Christ is culpable ignorance that will one day be severely judged. But Jesus will not need to accuse them before the Father. Someone else will do that. The Lord stunned them by identifying that accuser as Moses, the very one whom they had set their hope. It is difficult to imagine how profoundly shocked and outraged the Jewish leaders must have been by Jesus' statement. In their minds, it was utterly incomprehensible to think that Moses, whom they proudly affirmed as their leader and teacher, would one day accuse them before God. The Jewish religious teachers and authorities would express their ultimate rejection of both Moses and Jesus when they use a perverted understanding of the law to justify his execution in John 19, where we will read, The Jews answered Pilate, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. As a result, in the most heinous act of apostasy in history, they crucified their own Messiah. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, we are told, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. At the transfiguration of Jesus, what two men are there speaking of his coming death? They are Moses and Elijah, which represents the law and the prophets. Moses once told Israel that God will raise up a prophet, and just as Moses took his stance between God and man and articulated God to men and represented men to God, he told them that someday God will raise up a prophet and his words will be cut off in judgment. Death or life will come depending on how you respond to this final mediator. The sobering reality is that those who reject Moses' teaching about Jesus will face eternal judgment a truth taught in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Desperate to spare his brothers the torment he was enduring, the rich man, man pleaded with Abraham, I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. In just a few days, Jesus himself would rise from the dead, and they still refused to believe. Just think about it. If the law could have saved us, our Bibles would have ended at the book of Exodus and would have been about a quarter inch thick. But instead, it moves on to the book of Leviticus, which talks about the needed sacrifice of blood to atone for man's sin. And that's really what the Bible is all about. As we finish up, 
Michael Novak is a philosopher who makes the point that until there's action, our beliefs and convictions aren't sincere. He basically describes three different levels of belief. First, we have public beliefs. Public beliefs are beliefs we present to others, beliefs we try to get other people to think we believe, but which we really don't believe. So we'll talk about our family, our marriage, or our finances in a way that isn't actually real. We just want people to think that these are our convictions. We also have private beliefs. Novak explains that private beliefs are the beliefs we have that we sincerely believe. We honestly believe that we believe them. But when those beliefs are tested, we discover we really don't believe. Lastly, we have what Novak calls core beliefs. These are ultimately our only true beliefs because these beliefs are backed up by reality. So it's not just something we say, it's not just something we feel, core beliefs actually define how we live. Our core convictions are determined by the actions that we take. And so the question we must ask ourselves is, do we really believe what the scripture says? Only you and the Lord know that answer. Father, I thank you for this time. I pray that you would take your word and let it penetrate every heart that heard it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.